wonder why sometimes you can say the simplest things yet leave people so confused? Do you ever wonder if there's a better way to have that difficult conversation with the important people in your life? Do you ever wish you could write a song that would have such a connection, such meaning that everybody would love it? Well, I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton and this is Growing Bolder. And today, that's exactly what we're going to dive into, the art of of communication. You may not need it to survive, but boy, it sure makes life a lot more fun along the way. Growing Bolder is about being able to reach out and to be there for others. And communication, that may be the most important tool we have to do just that. And you know, Bill, you're pretty darn good at it. Uh, It it certainly is one of the ways that ordinary people can live extraordinary lives. And we've got everything on this show today from a big-time rock star to a songwriting legend, to a celebrity of National Public Radio, all to explain just how they did it. Have you ever heard the song, Don't Stop Believing? Of course you have. It's one of the most downloaded songs ever, recorded by the band Journey, written by keyboard player Jonathan Cain. Well, wait until you hear from him his life story of heartbreak and triumph. We're also going to talk to one of the greatest songwriters of our lifetime. He wrote MacArthur Park, Up, Up, and Away, and By the Time I Get to Phoenix. It's the great Jimmy Webb, but first... She was a star on NPR who's written some fascinating books about the power of communication. Celeste Headley is standing by. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives. That's Growing Boulder. You know, the question of the day, folks, is how good are you at communicating? It's probably the most important thing we do or at least try to do every day. It turns out that a lot of us are probably not that effective. Well, our next guest is an expert at the art of conversation, and she's going to help us all get at least a little bit better at that. And it's such a great topic, Mark, because I think if you would ask around, most of us think we're pretty good at it, but maybe we'll find out otherwise. She's the co-host of the show Retro Report on PBS. She's an award-winning journalist, speaker. She's a musician and the author of two amazing books that could not be more timely. The first is called We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. And her latest book is called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, overdoing and underliving. These are great growing bolder topics. So let's welcome Celeste Headley. How are you, Celeste? I'm doing I'm doing pandemic well. Oh, is that, that's that's a whole new emotion or physical state, is a great it? qualifier. Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> hey, there's so much we want to ask you. So let's go chronologically and we'll start with your first book. Anytime somebody looks at me and says, Hey, we need to talk, you know it's <laughs> nobody wants to hear that. Why are we so afraid to have that conversation? You know, it's interesting. We, you know, researchers have actually looked into that very question. And the answer is um, because we imagine the worst. So even if you've never had a conversation go absolutely down south, right? If you've never had a conversation go horribly in your mind, you're afraid that will happen. And it will prevent you sometimes from entering into any conversation at all, this sort of bugaboo in your head. Another reason um, that we are afraid of these conversations is we're so wrapped up 
in our own thoughts. Um, we miss all of the signs that other people give us that they're actually enjoying talking to us. So there's great research on this that shows that when we're talking to other people, we're so wrapped up and thinking about, oh, was I funny? Was that stupid? Oh my God, look at that look that crossed their face. They hate me. They're hating this. I'm terrible. I'm the dumbest. And we're missing all the signs that other people are giving that, that say, they're enjoying the conversation. They're totally fine. They're not having these bad thoughts that you imagine. Um, so if you use the word afraid, you're absolutely accurate. It really is our fears and very often unfounded fears. So we are better than we think we are. You know, I, I think all of us think to have a, a really good conversation, we need uh, intelligence. We need logic. We need a rock star vocabulary. And we probably should not rely too much on emotion, but you pretty much say it's almost just the opposite. Yeah, it, it, it is. In fact, we know that the smarter you are, the more likely your conversational skills are bad. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a few reasons for this. Um, the smarter you are, I mean, the first thing is the more that you know, the more interesting th stuff you have to say. And so you get excited about sharing all this interesting stuff that you know. There also is just a human tendency um, to we just don't listen to people that we think are of lower rank. And when I say lower rank, this is an unconscious uh, decision or judgment that your mind makes without you being aware of it. Remember, 98% of our thought is unconscious. So your brain will on some level decide that someone is of lower rank than us or, or less intelligence. And so you tune them out automatically. You don't hear them. There's another thing that happens with among smart people, which is that they, they assume they know what someone else is about to say. So someone will start talking and you'll think, oh, I know where this is going. And you stop listening and you're just waiting for them to stop, stop talking so that you can respond. Um, but of course, you probably don't know where it's going. <laughs> um, so you have to listen all the way to the end of their sentence to really understand what it is they're trying to say. Well, this is kind of an embarrassing interview. I, I think you're describing me to a T. <laughs> and here's, here's another one that I'm afraid of. We talked about this in the intro that is it true that one of the biggest barriers to a conversation is we never think it's our fault. We always think the other person just doesn't get it. Yeah, um, more than four out of five people will say that they have had a relationship ruined by bad communication. So nearly all of us, but less than one in five say it was their fault. <laughs> so you do that math. Um, <laughs> it doesn't actually work that way. Yeah, we always think it's the other person or we, we tend to think it's the other person's fault. We are, as human beings, we are quite accurate in detecting someone else's uh, areas that need improvement. We are not accurate in knowing where it is that we need improvement. And this is one of the great things about humankind. It means that we all need each other. It's, a, it's an indication of how reliant, reliant we are on each other. Um, but we hate that. <laughs> so we, we don't want to hear the feedback. You know, it's, it's really, really likely that we will judge ourselves by our intentions and judge other people by impact. So if we say something wrong, uh, we let ourselves go by saying, well, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean to hurt their feelings. Right. And then you let it go. Um, but if someone else does the exact same thing, we judge them by the impact it had that hurt my feelings. That was rude. That was offensive. We don't judge them by their intention. 
You know, th this is a really strange time, Celeste, maybe the understatement of, uh, of the year in many, many ways. I think we would typically be doing this interview on radio because Bill and I have a radio show. You're a, you know, a radio superstar. But, you know, because we have been exposed to doing more things like this, it's repurposable across multiple platforms. We do it face to face. And, uh, you know, it does add an interesting element to it. I, I have noticed in my own life that uh, if I get to know somebody, uh, face to face well enough. I almost always like them, but, but it needs that face to face. I like you, uh, you know, being able to see you in a, in a way that, that we can is, is different. What about communication like this, that so many of us are doing so much more now than we did before? You know, it's, it's, it's almost, you know, how rare it is to get a, a universe, universal sort of uh, concerted scientific opinion. And yet the opinion on the quality of different forms of communication or platforms for communication is pretty much unified. And that is that the absolute gold standard is in person. Um, and next to that is, is video conferencing hmm. I, with a caveat with the caveat that uh, video conferencing can wear you out. It can exhaust you. Video conferencing has this thing called the illusion of eye contact. So in other words, we think our brains think that we are making, having face-to-face -face encounters with someone, but we're not actually getting those signals that pass between human beings when they actually are making human contact and, and seeing body language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a caveat to that, but the, the real message that we know from decades of research is that if you're not communicating in a way where you can hear the human voice, the communication is probably not as effective. It's, it's really that simple. Um, and you can think of it simplistically, like all communication has three parts, right? It has the vocabulary, the words that you choose. It has your body language. Um, so that if you ask me to do something and I say, uh, maybe, um, it's very different from when I go, maybe. <laughs> um, and that last thing that you heard was tone of voice. So if you're emailing or writing or reading in a newspaper, you're losing two thirds of the message. Hmm. Well, you mentioned asking us to do something and that transitions right into your next book, which is just out. And it's another great book because it's something that affects every one of us. Do nothing, how to break away from overworking, underdoing and underliving, which is the big one. One of the most fascinating points that you make is how, what did you say, like in the last 150 years, we kind of turned our lives around from being task oriented to time oriented. And that blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, it's been a very, in, in the, in the long gaze of evolution, the amount of time when we've measured our worth in hours is a blink like extremely recently. Um, so there came a point during the, after the start of the industrial revolution, when it wasn't about uh, what you needed. In other words, if I, if my wagon breaks down, I go to a wagon maker and I pay them for that wagon, the wagon <laughs> and their expertise in making it is what has value. But when you have a factory making wagons, it's no longer the wagon really that has value. It's how many wagons you can churn out per hour. So each individual worker isn't valued based on their skill at making a wagon necessarily. They're valued based on their time and how productive they can be in that time. So time became to mean money. And the reason this is so significant is, I mean, A, it had ripples 
all over our lives. But also it meant that when we were not uh, actively doing something, in other words, when we weren't making money, we thought we were wasting time. Hmm. And that was a sea change in our lives. Folks, we're talking with Celeste uh, Headley, who is a PBS show host and has written a new fascinating book uh, called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. And Celeste, I know uh, we intended to do nothing but pitch you underhand softballs, but I'm going to throw you a curve because something tells me you can hit the breaking ball. Um, You know, we talk a lot about the fact that our culture leads us to believe that our time is less valuable as we age. We live in this age of society, and many people automatically begin to think that the value of the time, the value of their life, the value of their contribution begins to shrink beyond what society uh, thinks to be our prime. What do you say to people like that about, you know, growing older, growing bolder, and, and the value of time for everybody? So let me make this very personal because this is something I've addressed all the time. I've been working with NPR and public radio for more than 20 years. And um, I would say this to my incoming rookie producers when I was telling them to listen to the experienced producers and editors that were all around them. And I would say, listen, if you were hiring a producer or a reporter and you had two candidates in front of you and they had pretty equal qualifications, but one had been doing it for 20 years and one had been on the job for three months, who do you hire? And obviously (laughs) you hire the one that has more experience. Why? Because they've made the mistakes already, right? That one with three months experience has a lot of mistakes ahead of them, which is totally normal and healthy, but why not get the person (laughs) who's already made the mistakes and hopefully learned from them. Now that's not true of everybody. Obviously we all know people who have basically been doing the exact same things. If they've been on the job for 20 years, they've basically done the same job 20 times in a row, the same year. (laughs) Right. Um, But in terms of your time being less valuable as you age, it's, it's the opposite way around. I think, you know, it's funny because I just turned 50 a short time ago and, um, I I have been really happy with how every ensuing decade uh, life gets better. I mean, your body doesn't get better, but uh, life gets better. And it's partly because you have made those mistakes because the worst has happened. You know, my 21-year-old son, everything that goes wrong is possibly the worst thing ever. All he can think about is how terrible this is going to be. But I've been through it before. (laughs) I've made that mistake. The worst has happened and it wasn't that bad. I made it through. It was okay. And so it just makes me much more even keeled, much more grounded, way less excitable and way less likely to lose my temper. Well, I've got to give that to Mark. That was the best question of the whole interview. And I can't (laughs) even come close to topping that. And I know you do have to move on. But I do want to just touch on this as we kind of wrap up. You talk in the book about how Man, we're so into doing that if we're not doing, we, we can't handle it. We sacrifice our own well-being doing, making doing our priority instead of living. So what can we do starting today, Celeste, to kind of move more in the right direction? You know, I'm really glad that you said well-being because the problem is, is that we're always doing and not being. Right. So if you're constantly improving yourself, at what point do you actually enjoy the improvements you've made? Right. Like, what is the point of constant improvement if you are never 
actually taking advantage of those improvements and enjoying how far that you have come. I mean, besides the fact that um, constant activity, constant focused activity is not good for your brain. Um, you need a pulse. The brain is at its best when it's pulsing between focused activity and leisure, activity and leisure. That is the way the brain works at its best. That allows the brain to uh, sift through the memories, the information you've taken in, and then come up with creative solutions, new connections. It, it fires new neurons as it sort of uh, sifts through that information. But you're right that many of us have gotten so ingrained in what Bertrand Russell called the cult of efficiency that there's this feeling of guilt if you're not actively doing something. And to a certain extent, I think cult is the right word to use because stopping that is almost like breaking you out of the matrix, right? Like it's a re-education process of breaking you away from this cult. And, and it's going to take some time to, to make those feelings of guilt go away. I mean, it does feel like we're being pushed down that stream, doesn't it, with technology and everything else. And the only way to combat that or to start rowing against is to be aware of it. Uh, would you agree with that, Mark? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, this has been a fascinating conversation. And Celeste, I love your energy. Uh, I love uh, especially how you make yourself laugh. Um, you know, that, that, that is an incredible gift. And, uh, you know, keep on doing what you're doing because we need it. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, my son thinks I think I'm very funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we agree with your son. We think you're a great guest. And we love these books. These are two life-changing books. One is Do Nothing. The other is We Need to Talk, both by the same fascinating, thought-provoking, existence-questioning author, Celeste Headley. And more information on that is at CelesteHeadley.com. She was something else, huh, Mark? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, very, very interesting. And, uh, you know, NPR and PBS have some tremendous talents, and she is definitely one of them. Yeah, how great is it when the guest comes with more enthusiasm, you know, than, than in, any of us who are doing the interview who think the subject is exciting? You know, a lot of people are talking the same stuff in different ways. She's got a very uh, interesting take, a, a unique spin on living in the moment, being here now, uh, you know, paying attention to uh, – you know, to, to, to what's happening. We do all get so carried away. You know, we, we were amazed at how efficient our company got as soon as we left our office because of the pandemic. And, and we were literally working seven hours a day or seven days a week, 16 hours a day. And I needed to hear her message. So, yeah, it was great. Yeah, in these times, probably more than before even, Mark, that message really resonates. Up and away. Up next, he wrote some of the classics of 60s and 70s rock for everyone from Barbara Streisand to The Fifth Dimension to Glenn Campbell. It's the great Jimmy Webb right here. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare. It's important to know what's covered, so together we've created a guide that makes Medicare easy to understand. More information at growingbolder.com slash guide. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch.
for the county And I drive the main road You know, we talk an awful lot on Growing Boulder about finding your passion, and it's a weird thing because for some of us, man, it doesn't come easy. You spend a whole lifetime looking for it. And for others, like our next guest, well, he knew from the time he was 12 years old that what he wanted to do was to make music. Well, that 12-year-old ended up becoming one of the greatest songwriters in American history. He's worked with Streisand, Sinatra, Garfunkel, Ronstadt, and you want to talk about versatility? His songs have been recorded by the Supremes, The Fifth Dimension, Donna Summer, to Lowell George, Harry Nilsson, even Bruce Springsteen, recording his latest album, Western Stars. He attributes the inspiration to our next guest. Incredible. And perhaps his greatest accomplishment of all is that he is the husband of Growing Boulder's Laura Savini. Let's get Boulder backstage with Jimmy Webb. Jimmy, how are you? I'm fine. You just said a mouthful there, though. You know what the uh, the the best thing that that's ever happened to me is is Laura. I was going to say, you know, the songwriting stuff. Okay, that's that's impressive and all, but how <laughs> did you and Laura get together? She was doing a show called uh, Metro something. She was going around to the cabarets, and uh, I had just gone through a horrific divorce. And after the show, Laura, um, she interviewed me. She was wearing a green gown. I'll never forget it. And I took one look at her and I said, I'm going to give this girl the interview of her life. (laughs) You've written songs that everybody knows. But Wichita lineman, Glenn Campbell, MacArthur Park, Richard Harris. The glory goes to the singer. What's it like? to have everybody know your songs, but not have everybody know that you wrote them? Well, uh, you know, how can you complain about Barbara Streisand singing? <laughs> you know, get, get that chick off of there. I, you know, I can do that better, you know. Uh, I don't know. I've been real lucky uh, in the, the varied genres of artists that I've been able to work with. They've all been swell. They've all been great people. And uh, I, you know, I believe that my singer-songwriter career might have gone a little bit better had I not been working with such great vocalists. I mean, these are the greatest vocalists, you know, of, of, the, of the mid-20th century, um, maybe of the whole 20th century. And uh, Glenn Campbell ranks right up there as one of the best. Yeah. And a good singer, as you know, need good songs. There have been some really good singers that never got great songs. And what a gift it is to get one. Now, you ran into success when you were young, and you could have cashed out. You could have gone away. You could have lived on an island somewhere and never been heard from again. But especially now, and maybe over the last decade or so, you're touring again. And Laura tells us that you're enjoying it maybe as much as ever. Well, why is that? Well, a year before this, I did 50 uh, shows. And this year, I was, going, I was on my way to 70 shows, uh, which is pretty good for an old geezer like me. Uh, and uh, I just, you know, found a moment, an epiphany, if you will, 
when I realized how I would feel if someone ever took that away, because I love being on stage. I love singing such, my voice such as it is. It's, suffic it's sufficient to interpret my songs. And uh, it's the only way I can let people know that I wrote them. <laughs> Otherwise, they don't have a clue. It's really interesting, Jimmy, because what you do is you create an experience by weaving them together with stories. And uh, really, that's what a song is, is a story. And your story is just as fascinating as a lot of your songs. You're in your early 70s now, which you mentioned. And one of the toughest parts about this life stage, as we were talking about, is that we do lose people, family and friends and some of your greatest songs, Wichita Lineman, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Galveston. They were written for Glenn Campbell. How, how, how did his passing help you greater appreciate life? Well, uh, I think, first of all, that uh, he left, a, I have to say, he left a vast abyss uh, in, my, in my soul. Uh, we were close friends. We were, we were fathers together. Our kids grew up together. We were on the road together. We were in the studio together. I think that uh, to say how, how missing him has made me realize what a great musician he was, what a good friend he was. And it's made me want to look around and be in the moment and realize that I'm still surrounded by loving friends and my wife and my children and uh, to appreciate these things while while they're on hand. It's something that we all start to gain as we have more experiences in life, and that's perspective, a clearer vision of what's really important. And I know that out of all that you've accomplished, one of the things that you miss the most is being able to sit next to your dad working on model airplanes. And, <laughs> and isn't, isn't I was just true? working on my spad before, just before. Yeah, I you have a spad eight, right? Paints and the brushes and the things. Yeah, uh, dad and I used to uh, build airplanes together in the, in the wintertime, and then we'd go out in the summertime and smash them all up. <laughs> Hopefully we wouldn't hit anyone else. That's my secret. <laughs> yeah, isn't it funny? It's sometimes the things we did as kids are the things that we hold dearest. I mean, I, I know you started playing piano when you were, you know, six or seven. Six. But yeah, th those are the things all in all of our lives, when people are looking for what is it that I can connect with, what can ground me? A lot of times it's the things we did when we were young that 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 connects us. Tell us a little bit about what it means to have Laura in your life, because I know she works with you on the road, too. And how important is that relationship to, to happiness, to your happiness? Well, um, first of all, I love her. Uh, I really do. I, uh, I want her to hear me say that on TV. Um, but um, she, I would be absolutely helpless without her. Well, I know one of the things that draws her to you is the fact that you don't necessarily live in what you did, but you're always looking for, for challenges. You, After all you've accomplished, I mean, you've done Broadway, musicals, film scores. You tried television, wrote the theme, the ER, and 
you wrote an autobiography, so now you're an author with The Cake and the Rain, which was a great book. T tell us about the importance of not being stuck in your ways, having a sense of purpose and your drive to face new challenges. This, this could sound like a defense mechanism, but I swear on my saintly grandmother's grave that I enjoy life more. I am sorry, kids. You know what's funny, that, life more. Jimmy, that is exactly what I was going to ask you. You're a guy. You know, we, we think, oh, man, he must have loved the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then, you know, kind of coasted from there. But no, you've had so many amazing experiences since then. Is it possible to enjoy life now as much as you did then? I think it's I think it's more now. What a great conversation. I mean, so many nuggets in there, so many things to think about and a great perspective on life that relates to everybody. So thank you for that. And thank, thank you. you thank you for all that you've given us through your music and get back out there on the road as soon as you can, because uh, we all want to come see you when you come to a town near us. And uh, I'm ready meet, to go. And we will meet one of the greatest songwriters in American history the great Jimmy Webb. Up next, ever heard of the song Don't Stop Believin' from the band Journey? Well, it's the incredible story of the writer of that song, Jonathan Kane. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Florida's Paradise Coast, Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades, the ideal place to recharge after a uniquely challenging year. The area's commitment to health and safety with the Paradise Pledge means visiting with confidence. So for amazing meals, incredible sunsets, and endless outdoor adventures, only Paradise will do. Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades. Learn more at paradisecoast.com. What type of health care would you want if you became too sick to tell the doctor yourself? It's a tough topic, but it's one we really need to be willing to talk about. It's never easy to deal with, but you can save your loved ones and yourself so much stress, confusion, and second-guessing if, well beforehand, you do some advanced care planning. Advanced care planning involves making decisions about your future care with your health and social care professionals. These wishes can be followed if you're not able to make the decisions in the future, and it involves understanding palliative care. Instead of high-risk surgeries, debilitating treatments, and painful procedures, palliative care focuses just on what's necessary, what's excessive, and on comfort and quality of life. Palliative care is a team of health care professionals you can trust working together to explain your options and help carry out your wishes or those of your loved ones. Something else, it's not just for the elderly. Advanced care planning can impact people at any age. Whether you're dealing with an advanced illness yourself or supporting someone who is, it's an important step towards making sure you get the kind of care you want. The key is being sure that your family is also involved in the process in case you're ever in the position where you don't know what choices to make. 
Someone who knows your needs and preferences can be there on your behalf. And there's a credible, knowledgeable, and compassionate third party to help ensure that everyone's voices are respected. It's important to note that palliative care is different than hospice care. Palliative care runs in conjunction with your curative treatments. Advanced care planning can help smooth out many of the obstacles that come along with serious illness. In a difficult time, it can provide the peace of mind that you, your family, and your loved ones deserve. More information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. The band Journey has created some of the biggest hits in rock and roll history, like Don't Stop Believing, Faithfully, and Stoned in Love. Those songs were written by keyboardist Jonathan Cain, who's seen more highs and lows in his life than most of us ever will. And of course, he's learned quite a lot along the way. But he's still looking forward, sharing some new music with us and some invaluable wisdom on what he believes life is all about. Many times I was told, oh, you should get a day job. You know, you, the songwriting thing's not for you, and you can't sing, and just rejection upon rejection, you know. And I actually wrote a song about the whole experience of writing the book called The Songs You Leave Behind. And um, the song starts out with, uh, no one sees the countless hours you spend, the songs that disappoint you in the end. And few have felt rejection, you've endured. No one sees you had your dreams undone No one's faced the battles you have won Whatever melody is lost without the words Is you wait on the spotlight You come for the big light Applause you'll never show that you deserve Can't bear to see your stop fading Always got something new waiting Failure's just a word you'll never learn Sure, you might have a vision of you being the next Elton John, but it wasn't to be, not like that. But what did Elton do? He had Bernie. Oh, I don't have Bernie. I need a Bernie. (laughs) Maybe if I get a Bernie. And I found this guy named Steve Perry. Who could sing like him and who could play guitar and the vocals and everything they had were just the drums, bass. And how interesting that you were just as interested in, in the people in the stands. In the fans, yeah. And I would see, you know, what worked and what didn't work. I'd see, I'd listen. I'm like, what, what kind of reaction is that going to get, you know? And that's when I knew um, to steal a little page of Springsteen and Dylan and just bring the street. And that's where Don't Stop Believing came from, really, you know? You know what, uh, I was given a, a beautiful father, uh, 
you know, to sort of guide me um, and be my spiritual light uh, throughout it all. And I don't know if I would turn out the same without him, you know. And so it's really a love story about a son and his father. Through all the obstacles, it was always his voice, you know, that kept me on track. He would say things like, don't stop believing. He would say that. John, don't stop believing. Jonathan's always held on to the feeling that he's being watched over, protected from harm, and from what he's been through in his life, literally snatched from death twice, it's not hard to understand why. Uh, I should have drowned in that lake, you know, as a little kid. I should be gone. How does this man just show up on the pier and lift me out of the water? How is he out there? I mean, I was way out there, and there's this guy that sees this little kid go down, and he... And I'm looking up going, I'm, I, that's it, I'm done. You know, and I remember sinking. And what were you, three? Something four, like yeah, four. three or four. And all of a sudden, this hand whoo, pulls me out of the water. I'm like, what? And gives me mouth to mouth. Carries me back to my parents on, who are on the beach. I don't know what they were doing. They weren't watching me, I guess. You know, and, um, and says, I, I saved your son, you know. And it was a big deal for me. I was just like, hey, mom, dad, this guy was incredible. And they're like, yeah, that's great, John. Good thing he, good thing he found you. I'm like, no, it's bigger than that. It's bigger. I almost died. Oh, you are okay. You're okay. I'm like, no, I wasn't okay. That was scary, you know, to really all of a sudden think it, it's going to end this way, you know. But much more devastating was the fire. Jonathan was just seven, sitting in his third grade classroom when his school, Our Lady of the Angels, erupted in flames. He was able to scramble to safety. Many others, many of them close friends, did not. Here's a mistake I think people make when they ask you about this. Yeah. They focus on the fire. Mm. After the fire, Mm. after a hundred kids lost their lives, you went to the funerals. Yeah. You went back to mm. school and you mm. saw kids disfigured, yeah. bandaged, and in terrible pain. Yeah. Lives changed. Lives changed. That had that. You, you talk about you were wounded as well. You didn't have to have the physical scars mm. to have been wounded by that. You know, How did that change you or st- is it still with you? You know, you never, you lock it up. Yeah. I guess you lock up the pain. And uh, the sadness. But for me, I had to work out why. Why did those 93 children have to perish, you know? How do I I file that in my mind, you know? So maybe that's where some of your fearlessness comes from. Maybe Mm. that's where the attitude of, hey, I'm going to live to the fullest. Sure. I'm going to take Well, out of the ashes, you know, comes the beauty, you know? And out of pain, something new is born. Out of pain. Something new is born. And that seed, I believe my father started a different kind of fire in me. You know, he's, he started a new kind of fire. He put the fire of desire in my heart. And he set it ablaze right here. And he said, music, go, go. 
But do you see a lot of kids would say that to their parents. They say, are you kidding? Do you know what the odds are? Mm. The odds are against you. Mm. You'll, you'll work in bars mm. at best. You'll meet mm. seedy people. It'll be a terrible life. Don't do it. Well, that's, but that's the trust and, you know, the, the prophetic vision my father had for me. And then, you know, when I'm almost uh, eight and a half, nine years old after the fire, he's proclaiming greatness over me already. Um, Dad, I haven't even written a song yet. But he would, and his songs did well enough to get him on American Bandstand. Uh, rock music, I think, today is always kind of moving on. It never stays. We, we have new songs. We have old songs. We always love our old songs, but we're always coming out with new energy flows. His big break came when he joined John Waite in The Babies. They just happened to be opening for a band called Journey, who just happened to be looking for a new keyboard player, leading Jonathan to believe if you can just hang in there, life kind of works. There are seasons you'll endure, and there are seasons where you'll shine, you know, but you have to get through that other stuff till you get there, you know, and, and, and I think... Half the battle in, uh, in life is knowing that it takes work, you know, and it takes belief. And everything's an accumulation of what you do. Everything you learn um, all seems to bear fruit in the end. How old are you now, Jonathan? 68. And you're about to go on tour again? Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw Mick Jagger at 70, you know, do a pretty good job. And then Charlie, 72. I have a feeling Jonathan Cain's not going to sit around in a chair watching TV. You're going to be out there writing music. Oh, yeah. Playing it for as many people who will listen. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, you know, to me, um, you know, rust never sleeps, you know. It's like Neil Young says. And I might be, you know, have a little rust on me, but I continue to roll, you know, and and, and create. I've got a lot of projects um, lined up and, you know, I'm dreaming, uh, dreaming good things. Like, what's the takeaway, you know? And, and that, I think we all live for that. And I don't care if you're an author, a songwriter, an artist. It's what you leave behind that matters, you know? When it's time to leave the dance, be sure you know the signs you'll be remembered. Jonathan Kane of Journey. Oh my gosh! You know, I really didn't expect him to be as open and heartfelt as he was. I, it, it was great, very honest, very real. And you know what I really found interesting is something that you don't always think about. When he said even Elton needed a Bernie, hmm. we all kind of feel like we've got to go at it alone in life. And I wonder how many opportunities are missed because you aren't looking for your Bernie. Jonathan Cain couldn't do it alone. He tried. It just didn't work. What was missing was Steve Perry. And then it was magic. He didn't have more talent all of a sudden. It just worked. So if you feel stuck or unfulfilled in life, maybe you just need to keep an eye out for your Steve Perry. 
You know, Bill, it was a great interview. And, and, and with all due respect, when you said you didn't realize he was going to be so honest, I, I don't think he realized he was going to be so honest until he sat down with you. Uh, I mean, as we know, seriously, Bill's laughing now, but I've seen this time and time again. You get people to talk about, you know, the real stuff, you know, beyond what we know them to be. So, uh, you know, congratulations for doing that and thanks for doing it. Yeah, he, he's amazing. And what a great story. Folks, Mark has a way of saying things worth thinking about in the most inspiring and motivating of ways. And when we come back, he'll let us know what's on his mind. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guards stood hard when abstract threats to noble to neglect. All right, I'm just looking across the table, and I can tell by the look <laughs> that Mark Middleton has in his eye right now that he is standing by with another. What's on my mind? Well, you know, Bill, I've mentioned many times that, uh, you know, there has been a near frantic search for a new word to describe aging. You and I have had this conversation, something that would make people feel better about growing older. Companies have spent millions of dollars and put together hundreds of focus groups looking for just the right word. It's almost as, uh, as if we believe that you know, if we can find a new word, suddenly we're all going to feel better about growing older. So, you know, people have come up with wisdom workers and grand elders and older adults and super agers and olders and perennials and golden agers and on and on and on. But a new word isn't going to make the workplace no longer reject us. It's not going to make society suddenly appreciate our value. Uh, we, we allow these words to impact the way that we think and in what we believe and how we age. We don't need new words. We need to understand that growing older can be filled with power and passion and possibility. All that to say, though, I'm fascinated by a new word today. Uh, I read that the Japanese now call people between the ages of 65 and 75 the young old or yold. They are the yold. And what advertisers and employers and marketers and policymakers and most especially ourselves need to understand is that the yold are more numerous healthier and wealthier than any previous generation of seniors. In fact, the old are going to live longer and they're going to live better and they're going to live busier because the pandemic aside, most 65-year-olds want to keep working. Whether they have to or not, they want to keep working. And many studies have found that people who remain at work after the normal retirement age manage to slow uh, the cognitive decline that's associated with age, they, they're, they're healthier, they live better, they live longer. Uh, there's many things that need to happen, though, Bill, for our society to support the old. There's got to be policy change. There's got to be changing mindset about aging. But the thing that I want to mention today, all of this is leading to this. There's got to be a change in health care spending because most diseases of aging 
are best met with prevention and lifestyle change and not medication. But here's the deal. Only about 5% of most countries' healthcare spending, including ours, goes to prevention. Uh, and that's going to have to rise because although the yield will constitute a bulge in comparative health and activity over the next decade, uh, by 2030, there's going to be so many 70 and 75-year-olds that if we do not change our lifestyle, if healthcare doesn't realize that prevention is the best form of healthcare, we're going to have a, a disaster in this country. Yeah, yeah. Several several points there. Yold is fine, but bold is better. Hey. Growing bolder. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what that's what really describes what we're doing. And it's true. You can't be a wimp and grow old. You have to face so many different things. And great point about medicine. Maybe how now you know we uh, we've in not just the army, the navy, and the air force anymore, but now we got space force in there. Maybe medicine has to add a new branch as well because it seems that most of the time you go to the doctor, you're either coming out with medicine or surgery. Maybe we do need a third wheel in there, yeah. and it's a combination of maybe Eastern medicine or holistic medicine or acupuncture or whatever, but something to make us feel better, something to give us the chance to stay active, to stay involved. Uh, and, and that may be where we're headed in the future because you see it now. You see it now in great companies, uh, uh, Medicare companies like Florida Blue Medicare, who are not content with just keeping you alive but they want to keep you healthy and active. And, you know, I think one of the, the good things about social media, and the Lord knows we've learned a lot of bad things about social media in the last couple of years, is that it does enable people to share the benefits of, of, of active uh, lifestyles, of lifestyle modifications. You know, 20 years ago, we only were communicated with through the TV or radio by major corporations and pharmaceutical companies who led us to believe that we had to treat things with medication. But now people are saying, listen, dude, I'm, I, don't, I don't take eight medications anymore. I take one or two. And what I do is I get out and move and I feel better than ever. Yeah. The, if it's one thing we've learned, it's don't wrap somebody in bubble wrap. Get them back on their feet. Get them back into life as quick as you can because that's growing bolder. And that's going to do it for us right now. But we urge you to ask yourself, are you growing bolder? Go to growingbolder.com and find out how you can get more out of life than you ever thought possible. See you next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. Said I, proud me, Peter, proud. Ah, but I was so much old.